That was only two weeks ago that uh, I had the privilege of bringing the message on uh, morning service, and you may ask, what on heck is that old bloke doing back again? Well, it's like this. I got a photo from a uh, photo. I got a phone call from Peter um, in the week, and he said, uh, uh, "Gary, I hate to ask this of you, but..." My plans for what was going to happen next Sunday morning have fallen through and I've searched everywhere, I've asked everyone and, and nobody... I said, Peter, just stop there for a minute. He said, why? I said, well, whilst I've still got some self-esteem <laughs> and before you get to the line, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> About five minutes later, Peter stopped laughing. He was enjoying his holiday, apparently. And, and here we are. I am uh, pleased to be here. Judy and I have been members of this church since I retired from active ministry at uh, the end of 2016 and we have enjoyed both its ministry and uh, its life and its fellowship. And uh, in any part that I can return uh, what we have received, then I am more than happy to do so. Let's bow together in prayer this morning. Lord God, many people this morning have prepared in many ways so that this service may happen. And in each of our minds we have some sense of its purpose and direction, but we are well aware that your plans are quite independent of ours. And whether what happens here this morning is amongst those who physically attend or those who are listening in via their TV sets or other appliances. Nothing is by accident. You have your purpose and we pray, Lord God, that your spirit would work in power in our lives and bring your word as a living word to address our hopes, our dreams, our needs. Lord, we pray that you would give us clear minds to listen. You would give us warm hearts to respond. And you would give us malleable wills so that we might find your will and do it. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What was Jesus like? I particularly love the medieval paintings. Pretty snazzy Jesus, actually, with, with a permanent field of light around his head. Now, think how handy that would have been in the first century with no electricity. He could study into the early hours of the morning without lighting a candle. But the, these depictions of Jesus were sort of an anemic weakling and, and I don't know perhaps it was just part of the art of course the scriptures give us no idea what Jesus looked like I've done some historical research and I've discovered that uh, I discovered my great-grandfather's enlistment papers in the Royal Navy from 1851 and I discovered he was five foot six he had a mole on his shoulder, dark brown hair and light brown eyes. Wow. 
nothing like me at all. I must have been adopted. Or perhaps the gene pool has been sourced somewhere else. But what did Jesus look like? A better question, what does it matter? It's a fair bet that he was of average height for the day, five foot four, five foot six perhaps. Dark hair, reasonably dark complexion. It's amazing the Hollywood actors that have played Jesus over the years. In the early 1970s in Geelong, and yes, I do go back that far, uh, Johnny Cash brought out a film that he wrote and produced called The Gospel Road on the life of Jesus. It was filmed on location in Palestine and Johnny Cash um, uh, narrated uh, mainly from the King James Version the story of Jesus as it was acted out. Now the actor was interesting, he was about six foot two, big bloke, literally could carry the world on his shoulders and he was a Scandinavian. He was blonde as they come with blue eyes and by the time it came to the crucifixion scene he was already half dead from a bad case of sunburn. It was extraordinary how his complexion changed during the course of the film. What did Jesus look like? Probably more important is the formation in our mind of how Jesus acted. And we would want to use such words as compassion. And we see so many evidences of that in the pages of the scripture. That he cared for people, that he knew them, that he understood them, that he accepted them. And he was happy to greet them and meet them where they were. But he wished to bring some transformation so that the image of God might be restored in all of its beauty. So then an incident like this comes as a bit of a surprise. Last couple of days I got on the internet and I looked at some of the material on this passage and I came across this reflection uh, from a, a clergy person from uh, the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church of the United States and it read this. The story is very troubling. A Canaanite woman comes to see Jesus to heal her daughter. Her daughter is healed, but between her crying and the healing, Jesus says some terrible things. He is arrogant, racist, and just plain mean. Now, if this be the case, then surely his humanity is on display. Have you had days like that when you've got out of bed the wrong side? You've had breakfast that didn't agree with you? The day was too hot or too cold, there were too many annoying people, too many responsibilities, and you just felt like... <sighs> I felt a bit like that yesterday, actually, and then I watched Geelong absolutely thrash North Melbourne, and by 10 o'clock I was feeling fantastic. <laughs> it, it, it's a... I'm sorry for anybody here that barracks for North. Probably not here, actually, you're still recovering. <laughs> Did Jesus just have a bad day? Surely this is a not typical of his interaction with people. 
It's probably one of the reasons why most folk avoid this passage of scripture. It's problematic. Well, I'm brave. <laughs> so we'll continue. My daughter is suffering terribly. I was only 22 when I began my time as a youth pastor. And I guess I had met times of disappointment and even family tragedy. I knew what sorrow was. But suddenly I was cheek to cheek, shoulder to shoulder with people who were fortunate to survive in the inner city of Sydney, in Bondi Junction in particular, was in many cases the, 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 the refuse of, of human wreckage. And the stories that they had to tell, abuse, alcoholism, hiding, guilt, I remember my first sermon I ever took there and I knew the stories of some of the folk that I was facing and I seemed to get lost in their stories rather in what I was trying to do and in those days the nerves that I always feel when I preach I had not learned to control and, and I lost my way a couple of times. And one of the reasons was that I thought from my relatively privileged, calm, stable background, what would I have to say that would make any sense to folk who had experienced so much? I've been in active ministry for 43 years and I've lost track of a number of Funerals I've taken that have torn the heart, not only out of those who were directly affected, but by all who had some contact with the family and with the way the funeral went. I found it extraordinarily difficult to separate a professional approach because I was there to do something and to do something well and helpful from how I was feeling in empathy with those stories. The deaths of children, sometimes horrific stories. Suicides, more than I could count, unfortunately, of parents whose uh, children, some young, some a little older, who had thought that the only way to bring closure to their difficulties and distress was to take their own life. The first funeral I ever took was of a businessman who had fallen on hard times into bankruptcy. His family had turned their back on him. He ended up homeless in the streets and the only person that attended the funeral was his solicitor. Suffering comes in many guises. It dashes our hopes and our dreams. It questions the shape of the world and our place in it. 
It causes us to wonder if, even if the sun might shine literally, if it ever will actually in our own lives again. But could there be any greater depth of anguish than that of a loving parent faced with the illness of a child when there seemed that there would be no positive way out? Yes, I've been there many, many times with many people and I've been there myself. Our seven-year-old at the time, back in the mid-80s, had appendicitis and as he was being operated on, the appendix burst and there was no healing as the poison spread through his body. We were at Colac at the time, the pastor of the church there. He was scheduled to be flown to Melbourne by air ambulance. His deterioration had been so great, but they thought the flight was not possible. They would go more slowly and more gently by car, and they only got to Geelong, and they thought they'd better stop there. And so Geelong it was. Brad was in hospital for, I lost count of the number of months, I lost count of the number of surgeries, his weight lost to the point where I could close my thumb and my forefinger around his thigh. I was outside the operating theatre when they opened his abdomen again to drain it of the poison and the cysts that had formed and I had the smell of it and the nurses come out of the operating theatre reeling from it. And the doctor tell me that if they had to do it again, he probably would not survive. I know this woman because I've been there. You ask what happened to Brad? Well, we prayed. <laughs> not that we hadn't done that before. We had people around the world praying. We'd done that before too. And the next morning he sat up in his bed with his grandfather playing a game. He's 44 years old now, a trauma nurse come paramedic. A few years after all of this was cleared up, we had an ambulance come down the road, lights flashing, horns, sirens blaring, and Brad in the back about nine or ten or so burst into tears and we thought, oh boy, the trauma of that whole thing. We pulled over and said, how you going, mate? You said there's somebody hurting in there. I know this woman and I am sure that there are many folk who are listening to what I'm saying who have been there. The point is, what would you feel? What would you do? What lengths would you go for? I was more than ready to swap places with my son if that were at all possible. Of course it wasn't, but that didn't stop the longing to do so. Did I make bargains with God? Well, of course, I'm a 
ordained Baptist pastor. I didn't have too many bad habits that I could tell God I wouldn't do again, so I was, I was struggling. I would have given anything, done anything. And I've been with people in the same thing, maybe not so traumatic as a child's illness and impending death, but something that was destroying life how it was expected to be lived, and they would bargain with God. If only you do this, I will fill in the gap. How far would you go? What would you do? Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out. Now, what do we know about this person from those words? Well, she wasn't a Jewish woman. Wrong race. This was an area that had been fought over. People had been transported in and out for centuries. But it's pretty obvious from what eventuated that this woman had some knowledge of Jesus, his Fame, if you will, had spread. The words Jesus withdrew would indicate that he was trying to get away for a bit of peace and quiet. That was rarely successful. And it's also apparent from what this woman said that she had had some considerable contact with Jewish people and something of their faith had rubbed off on her to some extent. And this was not unusual either. In any synagogue, there were people allowed in on the periphery who had not converted to Judaism, and yes, that was possible. In Jesus' own family line, stretching back generations, there were Gentile great-great-great-etc-grandmothers. The scripture records that the Pharisees were famous for travelling the world for one convert. So it's probable to suspect that this woman was somewhere along the journey of being attracted to the faith of Israel to commitment to it. We can only guess, but I think the guess is reasonably accurate. And she certainly knew the language. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. The cynic may say she had studied Jesus well. And in her desperation, she had seized on the phrase, the words that would make him take notice of her that would influence him to act in the way that she would want. She had heard rumours, stories of Jesus' ability to heal and what she wanted most desperately was that outcome. And so she would use anything, anything, 
in order to achieve that outcome. If she had any moral qualms, conscience about using that phrase when she was not a Jew, she could easily justify it by saying, well, I know something of the faith, I'm attracted to it, maybe I'm beginning to think it could be useful, maybe it could be true. Surely I'm far enough along the journey to get away with using that phrase. Anything, anything for the outcome that I want. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. I'm part of the family, Jesus. I'm part of your chosen people. I'm identifying with them. You have an obligation to do something, to say something to alleviate the desperate need that I have for my little girl. To end this suffering. To put a full stop to this distress. Act. You're obligated to act. And so you put the description of her and her words together and there is a glaring problem. A Canaanite woman, Lord, son of David. And here's the first rejection. Jesus did not answer a word. How can Jesus be silent in the face of that woman's need? How could his face remain stone? How could his heart remain cold? How could his hands remain still? How could he be unmoved by that which was breaking this woman apart? And if Jesus was so blind and indifferent Surely he could see what lengths this woman would go to to achieve an outcome. Would not Jesus forgive her for pretending to be something that she wasn't because there was the life of a child at stake? Was Jesus preoccupied? Must be big business being God. How do you control and manage the universe? And yet we're told he also numbers our hairs on our head. Well, as I've got older, I've made God's task a little easier, at least on that. I try and complicate it because when I go to the barber, I ask to have them split rather than cut. So God's got to catch up with what I lose and what I gain. Oh, you could understand that God has big things on his shoulders, that he should be concerned about the miniature of some individual's life. Who is she? What does she matter in the big picture of things?
Did Jesus even care? These are the sorts of questions that arise, and they certainly arose in the disciples' mind, for they took their cues from Jesus. If he was going to ignore her, then he is the rabbi, the teacher. It seems appropriate that we too should follow in his footsteps and ignore her as well. So here's the first rejection. Jesus, for heaven's sake, send this woman away. She's annoying us. She does nothing but cry out. It's driving us nuts. Well, that was sort of what they said. You get the drift. The disciples were just following the master, echoing his attitude. And then there's the third rejection. He answered, oh, at long last, Jesus says something. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Sorry, love, <laughs> you're the wrong target audience. Sorry about your suffering. Sorry about your daughter. But I've consulted with the representative group and you're not the target audience. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Wow. Don't you come to me after this service with your problems because I'm going to say, not interested, couldn't care about you, you're the wrong person. You don't barrack for Geelong. Anyone here barrack for Geelong? Okay, you can come and see me afterwards. You're obviously a good bloke. Oh, couple, look at that. A few chosen people here, my target audience. The rest of you, nah. You think that's a little unfair? Imagine how the woman felt. Not only that, but she couldn't fix it. She was the wrong race. How do you fix that? Totally the wrong target audience. I have nothing to do with you. You will get nothing from me. Wow. How about that for a kick in the guts? And the woman's first response. The woman came, second, first response rather, the woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. Notice what's happened here. She's at least been listening and she's picked up on something of what Jesus was saying, okay, I dropped the pretense that you're obligated. I dropped the pretense that I'm a lost sheep of Israel. I dropped the pretense of using the language that would incline you to help me. Lord, help me. Surely Jesus now will do something. It's not right, said Jesus, to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Whoa. <laughs> You're kidding me. What's the woman done wrong? 
At this point, she's done everything right. If you eat with a Gentile, it's the same as eating with a dog. That's from the Jewish Talmud, the collected wisdom of the rabbis, dating from the time of Jesus. Oh yes, that's what they said, that's what they thought, and Jesus is echoing the worst of it. Here is a common Jewish prayer from the time of Jesus. I thank God that I was not made, this by the way is a common male Jewish prayer, I should emphasise, I think they knew the difference back then. I thank God that I was not made a Gentile, a dog or a woman. I hasten to add, lest anyone want to sue me or disenfranchise me or cancel me in any possible way, I am quoting something. I wasn't alive when this was written. I bear no responsibility for it, and I certainly didn't write it myself, although I'm reasonably thankful that I wasn't born a dog, I must admit. Yes, that's how they thought. And Jesus put her at that level. What would you do now if you were this woman? Well, you wouldn't go to that step. <laughs> yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that have fallen from the master's table. I stand amazed at this woman. I know her suffering, I know her desperation, but wouldn't you think by this stage she might have got just a little bit antsy? You might think that she would have thought, well, who are you to treat me like that and talk to me like that? Wouldn't you think she might have been tempted, even in the midst of a great need, to turn around and walk out and shake the dust of her feet from his very presence? The answer is extraordinary. You don't want to feed the dogs? I'm a dog. But even we might get a crumb from the table. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Remember this from the start, from that reflection on this passage, that Jesus said some terrible things. He's arrogant, racist, and just plain mean. The writer goes on to say, Jesus was converted that day to a larger vision of the commonwealth of God. Jesus saw and heard a fuller revelation of God in the voice and in the face of the Canaanite woman. Wow. She's a Lutheran. He's a Lutheran, this author. I think Martin would have something to say at this point. Truth be known, the Catholics that Martin was protesting against would have something to say. What? So we're meant to take away from this passage of Scripture that this woman educated Jesus, that she was even worth a crumb 
surely. Actually, Jesus, my daughter and I are worth more than the crumbs. This woman reminded Jesus in his ignorance, in his misogyny, in his racism, that she was a person made in the image of God. Naughty Jesus. Fantastic woman. Just think, if Jesus had lived to be 70, how clever he would have got. What a load of absolute twaddle. You see, at the point at which the woman and Jesus were interacting together, at that given moment, the focus of Jesus was not on the child. Not because the child is unimportant, not because her need is not critical, but because this woman is on a journey toward the light. And her need was critical. We are talking death in both of their cases. Physical in the case of the daughter, spiritual in the case of the mother. And the immediate question for Jesus was, what will bring her to the point where she drops the pretensions and simply comes with nothing in my hand I bring. These are not the words and the actions of a rude, ignorant, uncaring person, but of the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the express image of the Eternal One. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, does not read. If you've seen me, you've seen someone trying to get to be like the Father, doesn't say that. Jesus knew this woman inside out, back the front, and she mattered. And at that point, there was only two people in the whole world, the saviour of the world and this woman who needed her own needs. King David himself, Psalm 51 have mercy on me, O God, for I am the King of Israel, a faithful Jewish male who loves your law. Oh, sorry, doesn't say that at all, does it? What does it say? According to your great love, have mercy on me. Even David centuries before knew that when you come before God in desperate need, you don't claim your record because you will always fail as he had failed morally in his office as king, in his office as prophet, in his office as representative between God and his people. And he could not claim his record. The only thing he could claim was the love of God and his grace. Lord, help me, she said. 
I have no right to ask anything. I cannot manipulate you. I can't promise you I will do this and do that or become this or become that. I'm not sure what happened there, but there you go. (laughs) We seem to have lost it. Here was a woman who stood completely undone before the very presence of God. Oh, and by the way, the daughter was healed. Yes, Jesus cared. And by the way, again, don't you think that if he could do that at a distance, he could have figured out what was going on with this woman without the need to be educated by her? Yes, I know you're a person made in the image of God. I know you stand in need. And that's why I have come. I am not obligated to act, but in grace, from a heart that wants to act, I will do so. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Lord crowns the humble with salvation. He's been doing it for centuries. An old hymn, Just As I Am, a new version of it. This was written, of course, long after this woman and Jesus ever had a conversation, but it seems to reflect exactly what was going on. Just as I am, though, tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, you will receive, will welcome, pardon, Cleanse, relieve, because your promise, I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, your love unknown has broken every barrier down, now to be yours and yours alone. O Lamb of God, I come. And here's the bigger picture. Just as I am of that free love, the breadth, length, depth, and height to prove, here for a time and then above, O Lamb of God, I come. She came to Jesus wanting her daughter healed. She was prepared to do anything. And she went away with something much greater than the fulfilment of her need. She experienced firsthand the very love and compassion of God, not because she deserved it or obligated that God should give it not because she could manipulate God to do her will, but because God freely offered it in grace and in being touched by that love of having her life turned upside down by the measure of it that she knew and experienced, she did not know that there was a whole eternity before her with her life spread out, not in a life frame of 30 40, 50, 60 years. Wow, that's getting old in the first century. But she was to experience the love of God, not in a moment, but in life, in life, 
in life, even though she die in life, in life. The gift of God was greater than she asked for. What she received was so much more vast. What she experienced in that moment of joy and fulfilment and of completeness and wholeness was a foretaste of what God would have in mind for her as the centre of his love through eternity. You are not a first century Syrophoenician woman. Your daughter is not at stake with her life. But you may be wanting something more than you have. Don't come to God and bargain. Don't search the bookshelves for a do-it-yourself spirituality and cobble bits and pieces together that seem to make sense and come before God, whoever he is, what shape he is, and say, look, I've done my best. Surely this is good enough. What more can I do? And God simply says, just come. Bring nothing. Just come. Trust my grace. Just come. Empty-handed. Just come. I know words, string one or two together occasionally, but my words have absolutely no power whatsoever to do anything in your life and if they have, then all I've done is sway you, good on me. What's important here is that the Spirit of God is speaking to you or whoever might be listening whenever, wherever, just come. Nothing in your hands, no demanding, no expectations, no proving what a good person you are and what a better person you would be if only you would turn your face towards me a little bit. Forget that nonsense. Just come. And with all of the stuff that has filled your life with pain and regret, the consequences of the decisions made by others and your own, whatever they might be, just come. And you will find healing, forgiveness, restoration, wholeness from the goodness and the grace of God. And you will find it in its fullness and in time and in eternity just come and Jesus will say to you well done well done I've promised you've believed the free gift it's yours it's yours because you know to bring nothing except yourself in all of its brokenness you've come and I have met you if you wish to talk to me afterwards even if you don't vary for Geelong do so
You may have a trusted Christian within this congregation or within your circle of friends. Talk to them about what God has been speaking to you. Tell someone. And may God bless you. Amen.